0: You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. All right, well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. Well, uh, man, last night we did have a lot of fun. I don't know if you saw the, you probably saw the pictures, but uh, I want to show you another one of those pictures. What I loved about this last night was that the McGregors, they, at one point in the, in the evening, they gathered together and they're all singing, Joy to the World. And I just thought, man, what a powerful influence it is that in the middle of Christmas... Uh, that we bring Christ into Christmas, and it was a really awesome experience, and um, this is really embodies for us, I think, as a church, uh, kind of the heartbeat behind our church is that it's relational outreach, that we're building relationships, and that we join with Jesus with saying that we love the world, all people, no matter where they're from, what they believe, what they think, we love people. And uh, this was really good. I love seeing that. And so, special thanks to all of our volunteers again, and for the McGregors to have the heart to serve people and bring Jesus into the midst of it. So, can we celebrate that <laughs> outreach? It's really cool. Good job. Good job, guys. So, uh, what I noticed about the house, though, is like a lot of lights on it, a ton of lights. And so um, I know Clark Griswold had like a record for a while there is like 25,000 lights, but uh, the McGregors have 55,000 lights. Can you believe that? So eat your heart out, Clark. There you go. So um, listen, one of my favorite Bible passages during Christmas season is this one. Um, it's in Luke's Gospel, where the angels kind of share about what's this miraculous event where the birth of Jesus Christ has taken place in Bethlehem. And so um, let's stand up and I want to read it together, and um, we're going to note we're going to zero in on that word "savior." So let's say it together, "For unto you is born this day in the city of David." A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good job. All right, you can be seated. So, the interesting thing is about Christmas is that we always tend to think that a Savior is born. And, you know, um, I, th- I thought about that in my own life. I'm thinking when I first uh, received Jesus Christ as Lord, I was being saved. For a brand new life. I was so excited. I was being saved so that I could be forgiven. I was being saved so I could get rid of my guilt. I was being saved so I could get rid of that feeling of condemnation and depression and emptiness. I was being saved from a, a life of struggle. I was being saved so that I could experience God's purposes and God's plan. I was being saved so that I could experience uh, life everlasting. Jesus said, I came to give life and to give it everlasting. I wanted that. That's what I wanted. And I think as Christians, we tend to think about, okay, we're saved, we need a Savior for eternal life, for heaven, we're being saved from sin and suffering right here and now, we go through struggles, we go through hardships, we're being saved for a a wonderful plan for God's uh, life in our life, we're being saved for his purposes, but we're also, we, we tend to stop right there. But what I want to challenge you to think about Christmas is a little different. I want you to see the Savior with a greater level of intensity, that you're not just being saved to something wonderful. You're being saved from something terrible. And this is, uh, this is perhaps like uh, the contrast that you're going to find in the Gospel of John. You see light, and then you see darkness, Uh, there is a a reality that we tend to see uh, uh, the bright side of everything. And as Christian preachers and teachers and as Christians, we tend to be incredibly optimistic and hopeful. And we created that culture in North Valley. We live it. I live it. I love it. I'm constantly optimistic. And I think the Christian overall should be. However, the problem can be is that we fail to embrace or fail to see kind of the dark side of things. And uh, we dismiss or we downplay uh, the tension that exists with this reality. There is a savior. What does that mean? We're saved to something, heaven. It also must imply we're being saved from something. If he gives eternal life, then therefore there could be eternal death. And so in Christmas... Um, when we look at this passage and working through John three sixteen, let's read it again. Uh, it says, "John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish." So I mentioned that last week, and I said, "Perish doesn't mean simply cease to exist. That's annihilationism." Um, from a biblical perspective, it means eternal conscious punishment. That's bad news. That's terribly uh, harmful and hurtful to even think about eternal conscious punishment. So back to the Luke passage, we're being, a savior is born. We're being saved. From what? What are we saved from as believers? Well, perish implies this eternal conscious punishment. And then there's all these other negative words. The dark side of John comes out in the gospel. Look and notice how many times he uses the word condemn in the next few passages. This is a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And in verse 17, he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, for whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So in other words, you're condemned unless you believe in Jesus Christ. That's that's what he's saying. So condemnation, condemnation, that's just not that's hard. So let's slow down and let me help give definition to that. A Bible dictionary is a great tool to check out. What does it mean to condemn? In this sense, it means to judge. Generally, in a negative sense of finding someone guilty, you do something wrong, uh, you're found out to uh, have violated God's law, God's will, God's ways, you're guilty. The Bible tells us that we're all guilty before God. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short, we're guilty, we're guilty, we're guilty. In the Old Testament, such judgment usually is associated with divine action against the guilty. Um, here's another definition. Webster's Dictionary did a pretty good job on this. It um, says to pronounce guilty means to convict, sentence, doom, condemn a prisoner to die. So in a legal court setting, uh, to condemn, it means that you, if you are found guilty, you're generally going to be sentenced. Uh, either to life in prison for some horrific, horrendous crime perhaps, or uh, in our country, capital punishment. So what is Jesus talking about? And what is the good news? The good news must imply, the very idea of good news must mean there's also bad news. If there's light, there's got to be, help me out, darkness. If there's truth, there's got to be lies. If there's good, there's got to be evil. So what I want to do is I want to talk about the fate of the eternally condemned, and that topic is hell. And you're thinking, what's this got to do with Christmas? Well, when when the angels announced that a Savior was being born, we have to envision that we need saving to something wonderful, to heaven, but we're being saved from something terrible that is, that is hell. And, and Jesus is communicating powerful words to Nicodemus, who is a first century scholar, got the equivalent of two to three PhDs as a Jewish scholar, and he understood that the Jewish first century uh, uh, believer had a very strong sense of the idea of hell. But I don't think we have a good sense of the idea of hell. I think we tend to fashion our own hell. We think we're on hell on earth. Rodney Atkins says, I like the song, um, But Bad Theology, which is most of uh, country music. He says, when you're going through hell, just keep on going. You and I tend to think of hell in a sense that we're in a hell right now especially if you see the corruption, the abuse, the violence, uh, exploitation, rape, greed, murder, etc. You're like, I feel like we live in hell. And it's hard to preach a a gospel and the good news of salvation uh, uh, that God saves you from hell, especially to Phoenicians in July or August, because they're used to the heat. You know, they're like, it's hot as hell already. I can live in it. What is hell, though? In pop culture in the 70s and 80s, rock band ACDC Band says, hell's not a bad place to be. That's where our friends are. Um, Lizzo, uh, the new singer, she's got a song out, and she, she says, she, she does her hair, she checks her nails, she asks her baby how she's feeling, and she says she's feeling good as hell. I thought that was kind of funny, but... <laughs> Courtesy laugh. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Um, John Lennon says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy for you if you try. No hell. Believe us. Above, uh, above us is only sky. Imagine all the people just living for today. We kind of erased this idea of hell and brought it down to like feeling good as hell. And the Christian, I don't believe, has a very strong concept of hell. So today what I'm not doing is I'm not just gonna teach you the doctrine of hell. I'm going to teach you about the destiny of people, apart from Jesus Christ, so that you can see Christmas is incredible, because unto us is born a Savior, so that we take it in totality. Um, Universalist is the idea where you believe that all roads lead to one. Buddha, Muhammad, Gandhi, no matter what you believe, you believe it, you're all going to experience salvation. You're all going to have heaven. Heaven you're all going to experience that. In Christianity, there are new versions of Christianity. Rob Bell was one who departed from historical conservative Christianity and began to embrace ideas of universalism. How many of you have ever read his book called Love Wins? I just read it just recently in preparation for this message. Anybody read the book called Love Wins? Okay. None of you have read that book. Okay, that's good. Um, That book basically tries to erase the idea of hell, that there is no hell. By the way, the first service, several of you guys raised your hand, so that means the first service is probably a little smarter than you guys. (laughs) I'm just playing. But I want to challenge you. You need to embrace an idea and an understanding of hell. There are many Christian leaders and people that will say, hell is just what you experience on earth. It's not really this idea of an eternal place of conscious punishment and all that. Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, and with the idea that basically everybody goes to heaven in the end, that after death, even in death, you can make a decision and choice. And by the way, what I found really interesting in my research is that Catholics are generally two times more likely to believe that after death, you can make another decision and somehow get your way to heaven. Um, that's not at all what the Bible teaches at all. Um, but this idea of kind of uh, watering down the concept of hell has been around for a long time. Third century theologian, Origen taught that hell was a place where the souls of the wicked were purified so that their souls could find their way back to God. I would love to believe that. I, the Bible just doesn't teach that. Um, some of you are familiar with Dante's Inferno. It was a 14th century classic fiction. It's video games and movies now. But uh, Dante describes hell's, uh, he describes his journey through hell is what he's writing about. And hell was a place to him under earth's surface where there are nine levels of suffering where sinners were bitten by snakes, tormented by beasts, showered by icy rain, trapped in rivers of blood, flaming tombs. Some were stuck in huge pools of human excrement. What Dante does well is he describes the atrocity of hell. Um, But what is hell and do we believe in it? Uh, The majority of Americans actually do believe that there is a hell. Now, what they believe about hell varies very widely. I would say I think we have somewhat of an aversion towards the idea of this definition I'm about to read to you. Let me read it first, and then if you are frustrated with this definition and idea of hell, join the club. There's a lot of folks that are frustrated with it. Uh, Here's what I think is a biblical definition that I've put together of hell. Hell is a place of eternal, conscious punishment for spiritually lost and unrepentant. So it's eternal. It goes on forever. It's conscious. You're not going to be annihilated and forget about it if you reject Jesus Christ, you're spiritually lost or unrepentant. This is a place. Um, I think the reason why... Many Americans have an aversion towards this or disregard this, is because we are, by culture, almost anti-authoritarian. Even the children today they uh, they reject authority. Even adults today, it doesn't matter which president or person in office. There's an absolute anti-authoritarian kind of zeitgeist, a uh, spirit of the times, if you will, for our culture. We're anti-police, we're anti-presidents, we're anti-government, we're anti-authority. So therefore, if anybody can condemn us to hell, screw that. We will, we'll take what we want and fashion our own God. So what is a description of hell? Hell is a final destiny of unbelievers, variously described in figures of fires of furnace, eternal fire, eternal punishment, outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a terrible place. It's a place of everlasting separation from the Lord. It's a place to never see God's glory. It's a bottomless pit. It's a continuous torment. It's a lake of fire. It's a place for the devil and his demons. Three words to describe hell in your Bible. Sheol, That's a word in the Old Testament that's used constantly and continually. And by the way, the Jewish first century uh, uh, person, believer, um, not necessarily embracing Jesus Christ as Messiah, understood Sheol as to mean hell. They believed exactly what I would say Jesus was teaching about hell. So Jesus has many points where he breaks away from uh, the religious Pharisees on ideas such as the Sabbath or salvation or other issues, but hell, Sheol, they actually were very much in alignment. Um, There's nowhere where you will see in Scripture where Jesus is disputing with religious Pharisees about hell because they have alignment there. You'll see them fight them all the time somewhere else, but not here. The Old Testament, 65 times this word is used, is often rendered hell. It's a place of disembodied spirits. It's Uh, it's a congregation of the dead. It is what is next. Life after death, Sheol, in the Old Testament. Greek word is Hades. Um, It's used in a a wide category, so one, it's just the place of the dead for righteous or unrighteous, believers or unbelievers. It's the idea of life after death. But in a stricter sense, it also means the idea of what we would understand as hell as well. A third uh, usage of the word of hell is the word Gehenna, and it is a Greek word, and it's used uh, 12 different times by Jesus. And it designates the idea of hell as being a place for the spiritually lost. And a terrible, terrible place. And in the book, uh, Rob Bell, the uh, evangelical that would be labeled a heretic with origin and many others, um, he uses the word Gehenna and he references it uh, to be a designated place uh, that was culturally... uh, Uh, would have been well known and understood to the first century to be a place outside of Jerusalem on the south side of the city where there was a garbage dump where they would burn their trash and it was a bad place, but it wasn't wasn't a place of eternal conscious punishment. Um, The interesting thing about Gehenna, just for a moment, many scholars, commentators, Bible readers, teachers have argued that it is a location south of Jerusalem or was there's no actual evidence that it was that, um, and that it was some dump that was on fire. This is the word that Jesus uses 12 times to describe hell is Gehenna. So if it wasn't a burning fire dump, then what was it and why was Jesus saying it? Um, because there's no archaeological evidence that some dump ever existed outside of Jerusalem. And Rob Bell was arguing that that's what he was saying. It's just a bad place. It's, it's like, like uh, Jesus was referring to, it's just a nasty place. And when your life is screwed up, you're going through depression, you see uh, murder, rape, killing, that's hell on earth. There is no literal hell. And so what does it mean then? Um, well, first of all, the only the first reference to Gehenna... Was uh, written by a man, by the, he was a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi named David Kamichi. Uh, he recorded in a commentary in AD 1200. Did you get that? That's a thousand years after the time of Jesus Christ or so. Um, and it was, he referenced Gehenna, but what he was referring to, what was, uh, took place. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Christ, and that was the Hinnon Valley. Um, it was a place of sacrificial offerings to pagan deities where the Canaanites were taking children and doing children's sacrifices and killing their children, killing children in the name of, their, of uh, Molech or Baal or whatever god that they were worshiping And they were doing these horrendous things and then burning the bodies. That later, Jeremiah the prophet picks that imagery up and says, that's hell. That's what hell is like. It's a horrendous, sick, twisted evil. And so Jesus uses that word in our Scripture to describe hell. So let's look at... um, phrases and examples in which Jesus uses the word hell, and then we'll move on from there. In Matthew uh, 25, Jesus says um, this phrase, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus speaks about hell as being a place of eternal punishment. And there will be, in this passage in, in Matthew 25, he talks about how he's going to separate people like a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. The church, the believers are likened to sheep. Uh, Unbelievers are likened to like goats. And what he talks about in this passage is that there will be this separation. So in heaven are believers. In hell, there are unbelievers. And it is a place of eternal punishment. Um. There's argument over what does punishment mean. Um, some have argued and said it means correction. It does not mean that at all. Every time the word punishment is used in the New Testament, and specifically in the Gospels, it refers to this idea of eternal conscious punishment towards the idea of hell. Jesus additionally said this in Mark 9.43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands Uh, to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. So it's a place of unquenchable fire, deep intensity of heat. Um, It's not good. Hell, according to Jesus, Matthew 7, 22 through 23, this is perhaps one of the more startling ones and sad ones, is that he says, on that day, many... Will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me. Now, I remember I played church a little bit as a young boy. I grew up in a Christian family. I went to church. I had a good mom, a good dad. Every issue that I ever faced in my life pre-Jesus was, I would say, it was a result not of a dysfunctional family. It was a result of my own sin and my own rebellion. I was the prodigal son story. I ran away from God. And I experienced, I would say, hell on earth. Absolutely hell on earth. I watched my friends commit suicide. I watched my friends OD. I watched my, my uh, girlfriends get pregnant, have abortions. I watched my friends go to jail I I saw, I was in hell. I was in hell on earth. That's what my life was like pre-Jesus. I went to so many different schools. I got kicked out of schools. I got kicked out of church camps. Like, it's amazing to me. God saved me. Okay. So I, then I start trying to better myself, go to church, even got baptized because I knew there was a Christian girl that might be good for me. And so uh, that, it wasn't real. Uh, I just did it for her. And I literally start bettering myself. I go to Colorado in the summer of 1997. I see the power, the massive creation. I see the stars. And I say to the Lord, okay, Lord, I've been cleaning up my life. How come I, I don't know you? My other friends that have left the party scene, they say they know you. I don't know you. I don't feel like I even experience the life that they have. How come? And then this is what he said to me. I never knew you, Ryan, I never knew you. I went to church, I got baptized, I did a couple good things. I started saying that I I would sing songs, I would start doing stuff like that. And these are the words that came into my heart that day, and I said, then I wanna live for you, because I don't know you. I just know you the way I thought I should, but I, I really don't know you as Lord. And so the Bible tells us on that day, a judgment day, many will say to him, "Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful things?" The sad reality is is that hell is a destiny. It's not just a doctrine. When you go to Starbucks, when you're hanging out at the place, there are people. Their destiny is eternal separation from the love of God, from the life of God. This is a reality. But is it just with Jesus or does all the other followers of Jesus believe this kind of thing too? Let's look at, to Peter, James, and John, some of Jesus' closest followers, and let's see what they have to say about hell. Here's what they say in 2 Peter 2.4. 4, he says, for if God did not even spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. And then he goes on about talking about the judgment of unbelievers, the Bible describes that unbelievers will be cast into a lake of fire along with Satan and his demons. And so, what about James? Uh, James is uh, the, the brother of Jesus. They share Mary uh, as mother. Uh, Jesus' father was God the father. Uh, James's father was Joseph. Uh, but what does James have to say about hell? Um, he says this, and the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell or Gehenna. And what he's talking about specifically is actually uh, coming down on false teachers and preachers that erase the doctrine of hell or are teaching false gospel messages and the strictness of James's usage of hell goes to the tongue and about how important it is for us to, especially as Bible teachers and preachers, is to realize that there are some folks, they're just going to teach you something that's not biblical, not right, and James says that tongue is set on fire by hell. What about John? What did John have to say? This is the guy who wrote the gospel of John. This is the the beloved disciple. What did he say about hell? He said in Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, then he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a a terrible imagery. Thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, Their name's not written in the book of life. How do you get your name written into the book of life? You believe The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, check this out, that whosoever, whoever, whosoever believes in him, help me out, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, we have uh, the destiny of humanity is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You and I don't need to embrace a doctrine of hell and fight other people on the doctrine, we need to be more concerned about the destiny of people. I think you and I have probably a too shallow of a view of hell. We don't think about uh, people's eternal destiny. We think about could they have a better life here and now. We don't think in realms of eternity. We think of uh, things in a sense of what's happening this week, what's going on. Um, Paul had a sense of urgency constantly. He was nervous all the time that he didn't want to lose anybody uh, to a, uh, the, this eternal separation. And it's very interesting to me too is that Paul actually, while he never used the word hell, he actually spoke about condemnation, wrath, death, judgment, eternal punishment And he implied teaching on hell all the time. He used words like perish, destroy. Uh, He used 80 different times in 13 different letters. He made references to the fate of the uh, wicked all the time. He talked about it and taught about it more than forgiveness, mercy, and heaven combined. So it was a big deal to him. And in one scene, I see him with a sense of urgency that he wants people to believe in Jesus Christ and wake them up to get them to see and warn them that there is hell to pay if you do not repent and trust in Jesus Christ. In Acts 17, he's speaking before a pagan audience, and he's only got minutes to share. This is it, one message, real quick. And he identifies with philosophers and whatnot, and then he says, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world, he doesn't preach about a cross, he doesn't preach about give a conversion testimony, he doesn't say God's got a wonderful plan for your life. He says that you better repent, because a day is coming of judgment. That's his message. He's like John the Baptist, telling people to repent and turn. He's like that guy that's at the train station or the bus station or at the, at the stadium standing on that box screaming out to people that you're like, that dude is telling everybody to turn or to burn. And I would not do that. I, I wouldn't stand on that box. But I don't judge that guy because I do know that guy believes in a biblical truth that is absolutely true. That people are condemned to eternity in hell apart from Jesus Christ. I don't think God sends them to hell. I think they send themselves. Whosoever believes. You don't believe in Jesus Christ, there's hell to pay. That's a powerful, challenging message. And so we get frustrated with that tension of the preacher who's warning people and preaching hellfire brimstone. Like, I get it. I understand. I that, that that bothers me. I, I'm not that kind of person. I try to win people along. Even in the culture of this church, I've said officially what we adopt as a style of evangelism. You can do whatever you want, but as a member of this church, here's our style. It is a relational style. Be their friend. Love on them. Speak truth and grace into their life. We're not doing the hellfire brimstone thing, But what? but perhaps... I have, and perhaps you have, not a big enough view of God. That He's a God of justice, that He's also a God of mercy and justice. And so we get frustrated with preachers that talk about hell too much. But think about the father who warns his kid: don't run out in that street. You run out in that street. There's a heavy, Chevy four by four that could take you out. Don't you dare run out in that street remember uh, one story with my daughter, just a, maybe four or five years old. She ran out across the street because we had neighbors across the street. We had a big swing set in our tree, and we always liked to be the house where the kids would come over. And my daughter, at three or four years old, would run across the street. And I kept seeing the UPS truck and these 4 by 4s driving by really fast. I said, you cross that street one more time without stopping and looking. You're going to get a spanking. And she didn't listen, and she ran across there. I went, I jumped out of my... Uh, off the front porch, went over there, grabbed my little kid. And I said, whack! And poor little girl (laughs) just broke down and cried. Neighbors thought I'm abusing my kid. And I said, don't you ever do that again. And I tell you what, she's 16 years old and she says, that was the scariest moment of her life. (laughs) And I said, I did it. I I couldn't deal with losing you and watching you die in front of me. There's no way I could do that. And I told you over and over again, and you didn't listen. But when I watched you, you got it. Um, so the doctor shouts out and warns, you got cancer. If you don't get this cut out, if you don't do radiation, you're going to die. Or the fireman. He breaks into the house, breaks the door down, rips the person out of the house in the middle of the night to save him from a burning building. Or the police officer who runs in in the face of darkness and helps protect and save somebody's life and roughs them up in the process just to make sure they're safe. Nobody gets mad about that. But as all of a sudden when the Christian speaks up about hell, don't talk about that, man. That's offensive. That's offensive. I think we have to grasp a bigger vision for God in the good news. If there's good news, there's bad news. If there's light, there's darkness. If there's truth, there's lies. You can't just take what you want. You have to embrace what is true. So Jesus and all his followers were talking about hell, and Paul used it as part of his strategy to get people to trust Jesus Christ. I remember one time early in the church, I uh, was sharing the gospel uh, with folks in our church and I told them, I said, if you wanna go through a personal study, it was when our church was much smaller, I said, I'll lead you through a, a personal study of Jesus Christ and my prayer is that you'd place your faith in him by the time we're done. And it was over a three or four week period of time and the wife placed her faith in Jesus Christ very quickly, which that happens all the time. Women are usually more spiritually receptive and the husband had lots of questions. And so we went and on the very last night I was at their house, um, he said to me, I believe. I said, you believe? And he said, yeah. And he broke down and he started crying and I said, what is it? And he said, I read about hell. I do not want to be there. He was one of the first people that I'd ever met that literally, genuinely gave his, faith, gave his life to Jesus Christ because he was scared to death of hell. And I thought at first, I thought, this guy's not serious. But no, he was dead serious. He, he, he understood it. So here, let me recap. What are, what are we talking about here to, today? Today, we're talking about unbelief is eternal damnation. That's what the Bible says. To reject Jesus Christ is to send yourself to hell. That's what, it, that's what it is. Uh, God's plan, listen to me, is salvation, not damnation. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, that whosoever would believe in him. Uh, for unto us is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God's plan is saving people, not sending people. Hell is about a destiny. It's not simply a doctrine. Do not just think, i got a good doctrine now of hell. No, you need to embrace that there is a destiny, a location in which people go, you can go, if you reject Jesus Christ. And so lastly, you just can't straddle the fence. This forces the person, Nicodemus, would have come to this conclusion, do I believe Jesus Christ as the Messiah? That's what John was capturing with Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Three things that we can do. Number one, let's all be givers. Give yourself first to God. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Believe in him. If you do not believe in him, the Bible says that your fate is not eternal life, but it's eternal damnation. Um, recently, I went in, I told you I invited my barber buddy, uh, Carl, um, And uh, I was planning on going over there to give him his little card and invite him to the Christmas services because I love people and I want everybody to know Jesus. And I don't know if he knows Jesus or not. And so I invited him and then I started going in there and I thought, what about all those other barbers? So I was like, man, I got to make this good. They don't know me very well, but so I go over to Elevate, buy a bunch of gift cards, and then I walk in like Santa Claus. Merry Christmas, gift card to Elevate. Merry Christmas. Come to our Christmas service. Come to our Christmas service. My daughter says to me, nine years old, 10 years old, she says, why'd you do all that? We spent a bunch of money to invite all those people to church. I said, because I love people, Maya. I want them to know Jesus. Um Number one, you got to give yourself to God. The Bible tells us there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're safe. You place your faith in Jesus Christ. You have eternal life, not temporary life. Eternal. There's no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Number two, you give your witness. Uh, it's popular. Uh, to talk about doing good works, but ladies and gentlemen, good works don't save people, good news saves people. And we tend to, in Christian uh, churches, is tend to emphasize good works, go do things. That's important. Even in the book, uh, Francis Chan wrote a book called Erasing Hell, and it's kind of a counter to Rob Bell's book, and it's a good book, but they the application, I felt, was, I was frustrated because all they talked about was doing good works. Um what we need to do is not just good works, we got to be a good witness to open our mouths and say something about Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said that basically nobody can be saved unless somebody starts opening their mouth about Jesus. And this is what we challenge you at our church constantly, is to think about and embrace that you are a people. You are a believer. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ in your area, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, and in your department. You're a Influencer for the good. And so, this is what the Apostle Peter tried to rally around the reality for Christians in tough times where they're being censored, where they're being silenced, where they're being shut out, where they're facing government opposition against uh, Christianity. This is what Peter says But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may help me out, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, what he's saying is is that you were made to share, you were made to minister. You're to share with people what God's brought you out of. You're you're, you're supposed to open your mouth and proclaim that how good and how great God is. Have you experienced his mercy? And lastly, I would say you give towards gospel proclamation. This is why my wife and I give financially uh, to the church. This is why we give to mission organizations. This is why we as a church sponsor missionaries. There's got to be proclamation. You can't just uh, uh, participate uh, uh, in church, but not care about the proclamation of the gospel. People have to, this is why Billy Graham was important. This is why Louis Palau is important. People have to hear the gospel message. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. Go into all creation and proclaim. Open your mouth and talk about Jesus Christ. Give towards gospel proclamation financially. Invest in it. This is what the apostle Paul said to uh the church in Philippi, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your, help me out, your partnership. It's a financial partnership. And at this church, I've said to you before, would you be there at my my, uh, retirement party when I'm 65, 70 years old, and I'm an old man, and we've partnered together in ministry and in missions so that we can share and show the love of Jesus Christ Let's go out and make a difference together and realize that you've got to give your witness and then we give financially together towards a gospel proclamation at this church and to our missionaries. I'll be excited to share with you guys about some missionaries that we're supporting and that we're going to get behind to go do ministry and outreach in Scotland to start a new church in the new year. Uh, but this is important. The Apostle Paul said that because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In closing out, I've got uh, Luke chapter two, verse 11. Um, Nick, if you would pull that passage up again, it's at the very beginning uh, that I mentioned, why did I do this message? Here's why. Luke chapter two, verse 11 tells us, for unto you, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. People need to know the savior is Christ the Lord. People need saving. There's a destiny in front of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that we would take in all of what that Christmas day tells us, that there is a Savior and there is good news and that we can be saved through Christ the Lord. And so today, Lord, we surrender to you. And for those of my friends here today that say, I'm not sure if I... uh, in going to heaven, and I pray that they would simply acknowledge their sin, believe in you, Jesus Christ, to be their Savior, and confess you as Lord today. And Lord, you say in your word that yet to all who receive you uh, and believe in your name that you give the right to become a child of God. And we thank you, Father, for that. And I pray for our congregation our folks that call North Valley home, that they would be the givers, that they would give their witness, Lord. They would speak up. They'd give themselves. And that they would uh, give in a partnership towards proclamation of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.